Welcome to Hollywood Remix, the Hollywood Reporter podcast about culture shifts in entertainment. I'm Rebecca Sun. And I'm Rebecca Ford. Each episode, we do a deep dive into a single topic, a type of character or type of story that has traditionally been underrepresented or misrepresented in pop culture. So for today's episode, we're going to focus on lesbians on TV, specifically on LGBTQ female characters, not the actors. And then later in the episode, we will welcome Marja Lewis-Ryan, who is the showrunner of Showtime's The L Word, Generation Q, the sequel to the original series, which is going to debut on Showtime on December 8th. First, we'll do our standard background on the topic as usual, but not as usual. We're welcoming our very first intro special guest, our wonderful colleague. She's the co-host of TV's Top 5, a fellow THR podcast and West Coast television editor. It's Leslie Goldberg. Hi, guys. How are you? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, um, Sun, do you want to start us off with sort of the first lesbian characters in TV that we were able to find? Sure. I mean, the history of lesbians on TV basically dates only back about 30 years. In 1991, we had TV's first on-screen lesbian kiss on L.A. Law between the lawyers Abby and C.J. That was a NBC legal drama from Stephen Bochco and David E. Kelly, for those of you kids who don't remember. And in the 90s, there were really only about a handful of depictions of female-female intimacy. There was Picket Fences, Holly Marie Combs' teen character. She kissed a friend and they had to kind of reshoot it in the dark because it was like too graphic. Uh, Roseanne famously had a kiss between Roseanne and guest star Marielle Hemingway. And ABC initially didn't want to air that episode. And Roseanne sort of threatened to take the entire series to a different network. Weird, ironic foreshadowing there. She was a badass, I will say, originally, you know. She stood up for a lot Mm -hmm. of these groundbreaking depictions. Even then, though, if you go back and watch that scene on YouTube, it's shot from the back of Mariel's head. So her face is literally blocking the actual contact of the lips. Everything was always done very, like, it's, like, so dark, I can't see with angles. (laughs) And I think it's important to note that that aired on ABC, which is obviously it's a Disney-owned network, and Disney is probably the most family-friendly and brand-focused network that at the time, and probably still is when you, t- you know, especially as we talk about like Disney Plus and all of that content too. So, exactly. That's a reputation it's retained. Ironically, ABC also had what, according to Otto Straddle, uh, said was TV's first open mouth kiss between two women, and that was on Jason Kadams, you know, another showrunner who's really, um, become quite prolific, his very short-lived show Relativity. And that was uh, Between Two Women. And I think that was also the one that was the first between two lesbian characters and not just two women who were sort of a one-off experimentation. I think the last one before we get to the big one is um, I just want to talk about Friends, where, you know, baked into the premise of the show, Ross is a recent divorcee because his wife left him for another woman. And even though Susan and Carol were recurring characters throughout that decade-long series, even the episode titled The One with the Lesbian Wedding, they have a whole ceremony and they don't kiss. That's insane. (laughs) It's a a freaking wedding. (laughs) It's amazing. So we do want to talk about um, what I would say is one of the 
biggest coming outs was Ellen in 1997. You know, four seasons into the show, um, the main character and the star both came out. It was a huge piece of news. Obviously, DeGeneres was on Oprah and the cover of Time, and it just became this huge pop culture moment. I'm Leslie, I'm curious what you remember about that episode. Um, that was a turning point not just in the TV industry and for LGBTQ visibility, but it was a big moment in my personal life. Um, I had just come out maybe a year or two prior. I was a junior at Cal State Northridge, a journalism major. I worked on the Daily Sundial, and I wrote a story pegged to the episode because there was it was getting a lot of pre-air attention. And I interviewed a women's studies professor, and I think it's probably fair to, to note that at the time, she was my professor. I have a minor in women's studies, uh-huh. in the most on-brand thing you could say on this <laughs> podcast. But yeah, that was the cover story of that issue. And the episode actually aired on my birthday. So I have very, wow. very vivid memories of filing that story and getting the last edits in and seeing it on the page. And then going out and celebrating my birthday and then coming home and drunkenly watching the episode and just feeling like it wasn't even like it was just feeling like immediately sober and just like wow, this is one of the very, very first times that I felt like I was seeing myself on TV. Because until you have that moment, you don't realize that it's missing from your life, mm-hmm. you know? So that that for me was a first. And it was just like, that was my struggle. I mean, I didn't just come out. I, I like kicked down the closet and mm-hmm. I kicked down the door to the closet and shaved my head. It was like <laughs> ridiculous. It was like as if my forehead doesn't say, yep, I'm gay on it already. But yeah, I mean, that, you know, obviously, you know, and the yep, I'm gay moment that I'm stealing from was, of course, the headline on Time magazine when Ellen came out. You know, I remember the backlash that Disney got, you know, that lost advertisers. And it's astounding to think about that as being in 1997, because the culture has changed so much, not just for LGBTQ plus, but especially when it comes to television and the depictions of that community. Yeah, and it's really astounding to think, too, in 20 years, because as you said, I mean, there was sort of equal parts backlash from certain parts of of the country. As there was praise, it should be said that that episode, I think, won a Peabody. Um, It won an Emmy for writing, and Ellen won a GLAAD Media Award the following year. However, it should also be said that Ellen, after five seasons, it got canceled a season later. I mean, what do you remember or make of the aftermath of Ellen Morgan, the character, as well as Ellen DeGeneres coming out? I think that was obviously the pinnacle of that show, because when, you know, that and obviously everyone in the community knew that she was gay and she just wasn't out. I mean, I remember going to the Palms in West Hollywood and seeing her there regularly and going to bars and you know in the 90s ap- shortly afterwards and seeing her and Anne Heche out together and being part of the community which was always exciting but I do remember that it took a toll and when you have a character come out on a show like that it became more about that struggle because you can't just say oh yep I'm gay and then have that not be part of the storyline anymore mm-hmm. and I think that was a, you know a lesson in for broadcast that how do we tell these stories and also do it in a way that that is broad and that doesn't alienate a certain slice of the population that's already watching this show? Because it was advertised originally as a family comedy, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. like the two siblings and their family dynamic and, and all of that, you know, but she had a hard time. She became the face of the LGBTQ community and to a certain extent still is. Mm-hmm. You know, she's my captain, although I'm still upset at that Kevin Hart interview she yeah, did. But, right. <laughs> you know, there, she had a lot of fallout professionally. It was hard for her to get work after that. And I think, you know, there's a, a case study in 
what to do when you come out and how that affects your career because it did for her in the 90s mm-hmm. it absolutely did and she and read her books it's very well documented yeah. yeah and so you know after that tv took a couple of years sort of a step back from uh they, they were like okay this is you know too much and they overcorrected but around the millennium the willennium we started to see um, new portrayals of of lesbian characters, and we, you know, obviously in two thousand, Queer as Folk premiered on Showtime, and and that looked at the gay community in general. And there was a stable lesbian couple, Melanie and Lindsay, on the show, but they were. I think it's pretty much safe to say that they kind of took a backseat to the definitely men, took a backseat. Right? Although they had some storylines, and look, Queer as Folk is probably one of my all time favorite shows. I remember my my group of friends at the time all getting together to watch on Sunday nights on Showtime. And when they doubled it up and it was all of a sudden Queer as Folk leading into the L word, mm-hmm. you were just like, oh, my God. There were viewing parties at bars in West Hollywood who turned off the thump a thump of music and actually mm-hmm. projected <laughs> the shows on the side of the wall. But, yeah, the, Melanie and, and Lindsay were very much a backseat on Queer as Folk. They did take a couple of front seats. They got married. They broke up. You know, there was a lot of, of turmoil because, you know, like every any good relationship show, there's turmoil. Right. Yeah, you know, it's a drama. happy people are boring, as they say on TV. And as I think Shonda has said repeatedly on, about shows like Grey's Anatomy. But yeah, Queer as Folk was it was a great turning point because it also not just included the lesbian characters, but for a lot of gay characters, you know, I it, it brought it to the mainstream, even if it was on a premium cable network where you had to subscribe um, you know, I've interviewed and remained friends with the cast and creators over the years. And one of the co-stars, Peter Page, who played Emmett and who is now a showrunner of Freeform's Good Trouble, which is a spinoff of The Fosters, which features a, a lesbian mm-hmm. family at, at the center. Peter Page always had an expression that stuck with me. And he always said they came for the queer, but they stayed for the folk. Mm. Oh, and that I think that good. that's a very yeah. great representation of what that show was, whether it was for the lesbian couples or the gay couples. Yeah, exactly. And then even back onto broadcast, you began to see not just depictions of intimacy, but characters who were lesbian. And we'll talk about later why that that there's a difference between those two things. Um, you know, even on broadcast TV and 2003, um, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that Buffy is credited with the first lesbian sex scene on broadcast TV. And it's between Willow and, I said I was going to say this, uh, Kennedy. <laughs> uh, Kennedy. Uh. Kennedy. And that was nuts because Willow at that point had been out for about three seasons, uh, you know, before they showed her actually intimate. And for a long time prior to that, um, they just literally used magic as a metaphor for like lesbian stuff mm-hmm. so like she'd like hold hands with tara and then it'd be like they'd just they, it'd be like glowing orbs and you know i'm just gonna go to the sex scene from once more with feeling the yeah. musical episode yeah where she, they're literally having <laughs> sex and it's like she's their levity <laughs> but it's also like if you listen to the lyrics and you watch that scene joss was very very smart in the way he represented the female orgasm in that um in that i've scene. listened to the soundtrack a gazillion times same, same. and um um, how do I say this in a, w- a way that, okay, the line is, you make me complete, but the emphasis is on a different syllable. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we'll say it that yeah. way. Um, okay. Like I said, geniusly crafted. <laughs> so now let's go to some tropes. Yeah, I think one of the major tropes we've seen is the rating stunt. You know, this is, uh, especially the, I think the scenes involving gay women are sort of hypersexualized and used as like rating mm-hmm. space. Like, come check out this episode where, you know, 
Rachel and Winona Ryder have a kiss or whatever, or a, a romantic relationship. And so it it's just like a bait to get for yeah. people to see this sort of risky take, you know, on a show. And, and it's that's not what, real and genuine. And that's what Roseanne and Marielle Hemingway was. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. It's like, oh, you've got to tune in to see this. But it's not an actual you know, real storyline or real character development. And no, just... and even that Friends episode, I mean, and that was, you know, vintage Winona Ryder. Right. Um, and Friends at the top of its game when it was still airing. But, like, that was, like, holy crap, they're going to have Rachel and Winona Ryder make out? Right. Like, where do I sign, right? You know, and then now I'm just like, you watch that episode and you're just like, okay, she was really gay and had feelings for Rachel, mm-hmm. but it doesn't come out until the end of the episode because they're not going to make Winona Ryder gay for 30 minutes. Right. Yeah. And I actually remember that being teased, like, you know, back in the day when we were not watching anything on demand, like they teased that for an entire week. And then actually if it's crazy, but the episode title is the one with Rachel's big kiss. So it's a very meta. I mean, that's what people well, it's about Rachel. It about. Yeah. It's about Rachel, but it's about, it's about the, you know, Jennifer Aniston kissing a lady, you know, type of thing. And so there were a number of sort of rating stunts that did that. I also next wanted to ask you about another trope that I think, Leslie, you are one of the preeminent journalists who has covered this. Um, It's called bury your gaze. Tell us about what that is. Well, first, I am not one of the preeminent journalists who covered that. I would give that credit to people like the great Dorothy Snarker from um, After Ellen, who's now one of the great freelancers out there covering the community, Heather Hogan at Autostraddle, formerly of After Ellen. Um, I started my career writing for After Ellen as a freelancer when I was still a copy editor here at, at THR. And, you know, that trope has been around a very, very, very long time. Um, Dorothy Snarker actually wrote a, a great guest column, um, an LA Press Club nominated guest column about the history of that trope. And it really came to the to the mainstream on the CW's The 100 a couple of years ago. And that trope is basically where you see these two lesbian characters have a great, great moment together. And then one of them are, is killed off because it further advances a storyline of a heterosexual character. And that happens all the time. And, you know, I think a lot of a lot of programs have gotten better about avoiding that because of the backlash that came to the 100 after that that happened. Look, they had this fan favorite character sleep with her her partner. And it was this huge moment that was, you know, multiple episodes. I don't watch that show, but it was a long time coming for those two characters. And then, of course, one of them dies instantly, you know, immediately afterwards to further, you know, a straight character storyline. And the backlash was everywhere, Mm -hmm. which is hard for a a show that aired on the CW, which tends to have typical lower linear ratings than anything else. But it became a cultural milestone because of the attention that it got. And I think it probably helped, you know, a lot of showrunners really say, oh, crap, we do this all the time. We got to stop doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. Glad held workshops with showrunners and and said, here's how you can avoid doing some of these tropes that have become a stereotype that need to stop. What was the show's response to the backlash or the showrunners or... Uh, I don't think anyone has publicly commented on it. And if, if they did, it certainly wasn't memorable. Yeah. You know, but, you know, that that show is still airing. I think it's in a, you know, in its final season. They're working on a spinoff. So it really didn't really affect them. Right. But it's much. more the way the showrunner community paid attention yeah. to this. Absolutely. If, if there's one takeaway from that, it's it's that people learn from their mistake. Your description of the trope actually makes me realize that I think, did would, it, would Buffy count as having committed that trope? Because... This is a 15-year spoiler, but like, you know, Willow and Tara... I haven't Tara... seen it yet. Don't <laughs> Stop. <laughs> You've never seen Buffy? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Willow and Tara... This is, uh, what is this, season six? Willow and Tara reconcile, 
and then they kiss, and then literally right after they kiss, Tara gets shot through the bedroom window, and she died. That's a barrier gates because it's to further Willow becomes Dark Willow, and right. But if it mostly f- it mostly furthered Willow's ah, storyline, so true. it doesn't really qualify as that. Well, but that makes yeah. sense. That, good. You're you right. guys don't have to diss Buffy. There so. we go. Yeah, I don't want to diss Buffy. <laughs> So we'll fast forward to today where, you know, I think when we were looking at it, there's quite an array of different types of lesbian representation. Can we just pause across. on that yeah. for a second? Yeah. Let's do it. Just there's an array. There's an array. <laughs> <laughs> think about it in your life. I mean, we were talking about 20 years ago, Ellen DeGeneres takes an enormous career hit because she right. comes out on TV. 20 years later, she's one of the most highly paid people. In the entertainment industry, with an Including entire brand, media furniture brands, empire, multiple you know scripted, unscripted shows, and for and beyond that, what's amazing to me too is if you look at Ellen's image, right? She was condemned by like conservative family groups. Now she is sort of the sweetheart of you know homemakers across the United States, right? She's the one that you tag on Twitter for a feel-good story. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, maybe the most famous lesbian in America, you know? I would say easily, yeah. Um, and they just had that, you know, they just did this, uh, they had this viral moment where they had a lesbian couple on, I think it was last week or the week before. Oh, uh, yeah, the one that, the, like, the really Instagram beautiful one <laughs> oh that, God, like, yeah. that proposed at the Eiffel Tower. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. And they, you know, helped pay for their wedding and this whole thing. And, you know, also, you know, she had some great words for half the couple because their parent... I I can't remember which bride it was, but one of one of their parents wasn't supportive. And to hear her have those words on a show that's syndicated throughout the U.S. and to have that moment go viral, I mean, with her telling them like it gets better, that's pretty cool. But yeah, to your to your point, you know, look, we've come a very, very long way, you know, and I think were it not for shows like Ellen's original comedy it wouldn't have opened the door for some of the shows that you have listed here. Orange is the New Black and, and some of these characters, you know, the Fosters, which we talked about briefly, shows like Vita and even like way back in the beginning of Amazon, Transparent. You know, we wouldn't be having these cultural moments like the, the transgender. There wouldn't be a show like Pose, which is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. You know, like it all comes back to Ellen for me. And now there is because whenever you have more than one character sort of shouldering the burden of representation, you're able to show all these different aspects. And so certainly one aspect is this rise of younger representations, of family representations. So the Fosters was a great example. You've got, I mean, all of these young people from, you know, from Santana and Brittany on Glee to like Cheryl and Tony on Riverdale. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, one day at a time, you know, the teen daughter, Elena. But then you also have, I would would say there's superheroes who are gay and and there's several in the Berlanti Arrowverse. Um, you know, fronted, of course, by now um, the first lesbian superhero to get her own show as the title hero. Yeah, Batwoman on the CW, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. I should um, do my disclaimer <laughs> here. My wife is a staff writer on Batwoman. I'm very proud of my Jewish lesbian superhero loving <laughs> wife writing on a show about a Jewish lesbian superhero. That, um, that yeah, exists. You that know? exists. Uh, and, you know, Ruby Rose, you know, she quit Twitter because of the backlash, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. so it's still happening. It's not like everything is hunky dory at this at this point. But what Natalie and my wife, Natalie, and I talk about all the time is were this a show that existed when my wife were growing up, how different her life could have been yeah. and how different and, and how it is impacting the lives of people in, in the 18 to 34 demo who may just be coming out or who may see themselves in Ruby for, you know, for the first time. Maybe Ruby Rose is there, Ellen. 
You know, it's it, it's all to me about you know it's it's visibility, and I always kind of come back to this great Harvey Milk quote, where it's if if they know us, they can't discriminate against us, and TV as art helps one hundred percent achieve that. Yeah, I mean, I think the normalization, right? Um, the fact that you're going from you know again, TV has had iterations and iterations of, of doctor shows, right? And going from like Doctor Weaver on ER to a generation later, you had Taurus and you had yeah, Callie on in Arizona. And Arizona on I got to Grace. be on set for the Grey's Anatomy wedding between Callie and Arizona, and my head almost exploded. <laughs> now, did they kiss in the wedding? Hell yeah, they kiss <laughs> right? in the wedding. See? It's, it's a Shonda show. There's no way yeah. she was going to have a lesbian wedding and not have them kiss. Or have like a plant in front yeah. of the kiss. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Artfully obscured. And, 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 and I, I would also just wanted to shout out a few more. First, pointing out that as we've had better representation, we've also had more intersectional representation of lesbians. And so they're not now all just white. Um, we have, um, as we mentioned, there are a number, one day at a time, Vita, a lot of queer women of color. And, and I think I read a great interview from the showrunner Tanya Siracho from last season where she talked about it. That, now, that show was on premium cable. It's on stars. Mm-hmm. So they're able to show quite a bit more than on broadcast oh, yeah. television. And she was talking about how just even depicting queer women of color, you know, uh, in pleasure in that way is is it still a transgressive and sort of a groundbreaking act because that's something you don't really see and it just reminded me of how far the depictions of women and women in love have come since the 90s when Mariel Hemingway had to block Roseanne's face right, right? this is within our lifetime uh, and now we're even going back to period portrayals with um, the excellent HBO drama Gentleman Jack, which is about a real-life historical lesbian, Ann Lister, and then Apples Dickinson, which, Mm -hmm. you know, recasts our sort of, you know, iconic poet emeritus, uh, not recasts, is is sort of revisits her as a queer woman. Mm -hmm. And the most popular drama on Apple, apparently. (laughs) Yes, apparently. Or, yeah, it's a a half-hour comedy or something yeah series yeah Yeah. but it's gotten of of the four shows that they launched with that one definitely has gotten the better and more consistent reviews which says a lot when you're competing with a show that has jennifer aniston and reese Mm -hmm. witherspoon in it yeah um but yeah i mean to me you know it goes back to ellen opening the door and tv is finally catching up and starting to represent pieces of the world that typically hadn't been shown on tv and you know when you can see yourself on tv that's great it moves people. It moved me when Ellen came out. And then it, to be able to see yourself now on a show and as people continue to grow and as TV continues to push the envelope and, and explore underserved and underrepresented communities, there can be no wrong to me. Yeah. Leslie, I'm so happy you could join us today. You were such a wonderful source of knowledge on this topic, and I really appreciate hearing your stories. Thank you for having me, and and I love your podcast. Keep doing Mm -hmm. what you're doing. Ah, feelings mutual. So be sure to check out Leslie's podcast as well, TV's Top 5. It's a weekly podcast on everything TV that is really entertaining and smart and great. Super informative. And up next, we'll talk to Marja Lewis-Ryan about the L Word series. Our guest for this episode is Marja Lewis-Ryan, showrunner of Showtime's highly anticipated sequel to The L Word, Generation Q, which comes out December 8th. Now, Generation Q is Marja's first TV project, but she's written several plays, including the award-winning Four-Faced Liar, One in the Chamber. She also directed Netflix's addiction drama last year, Six Balloons, which starred Abby Jacobson and Dave Franco. And next, she's writing the Splash remake, starring Channing Tatum as the mermaid and Jillian Bell as the human. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. We really are excited to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. So we're going to go back and start with your sort of earliest memories of what kind of lesbian and queer representation you saw in the media when you were growing up yourself. Sure. Yeah. I um, So I grew up in Brooklyn. I went to an all-girls Catholic school, which I loved. I had a really good time there. I dated the head cheerleader. I played basketball. It was really a dream. I didn't see myself at all on television or in films. The very first lesbian movie I ever saw was Kissing Jessica Stein. And I think that that was sort of like the emergence of the queer narrative was like through the heterosexual lens, which was something that the original L word did too. that like we would walk into these queer spaces, but like with this like heterosexual guide. And I, I mean, I didn't know that at the time. I was just like really excited about kissing Jessica Stein. Um, I mean, I, I watched the shit out of that movie. That was um, really like my touchstone for like what like lesbian content was. Um, I was 19 when the original L Word came out and I was in college and there was a blockbuster right across the street. I went to NYU and there was a blockbuster across the street on Third Avenue and my buddy and I would go down and rent the DVDs and just like binge watch. It was the original binge watch, the DVD box set, you know? So we were always like a season behind. And I remember she she tells this story a lot. She's also a lesbian, but she didn't know it at the time. And she said that when she would go rent them, she would always tell the woman, this is for my friend. <laughs> and I was like, like the lady at blockbuster cared about like what we were up to you know but there was just like so much shame that surrounded my coming out and I mean I'm not really that old but I do think that the equality like marriage equality movement um happened well into my adulthood um but I think that the younger generation that's like coming up just behind me that that was like a reality for them during all of their formative years um I I think they carry a bit a bit less shame and I I think that like media is really important in terms of like shaping their understanding of who they are in the world it certainly was for me speaking of that when you were embarking on your career right in the arts what types of stories uh, were you trying to tell and did you encounter any resistance to getting certain projects made or certain themes made um so really when I when I so I was a theater major at NYU and so my only like like real hero was Wendy Wasserstein and then when I saw the L word I was like oh I can just make like gay Wendy Wasserstein like you know like I was like oh there's there's like one other thing that I could be doing here so I I really set out I moved to LA like three days after like my my final paper was due and I moved out here with three of my best friends from college and I made that play the four-faced liar like right we moved out here in the summer of 2006 in March of 2007 that play was up and a friend of mine who was like slugging pizzas at the time who wanted to be a producer was like, you should make that into a movie. And I was like, sure, I can definitely do that. And um, I had I had no idea of what I was doing. Um, but there's something really helpful about like ignorance in that space because I just I didn't know. Um, so I didn't know how hard it would be or how easy it would be. It just was able to like take everything like truly one step at a time. So I, I personally didn't really encounter any resistance. I, I asked everybody that I knew for money. I raised a quarter million dollars with my buddies and we got to go make this movie. We we were just like right place, right time in so many ways. We were the first sort of round of films that were shot on the red camera. So like every time somebody would see this tiny movie, they were like, it looks like a real movie is what they would say. And we were like, well, it is, but <laughs> I see what you're saying. Um, and uh, just just being able to like actually put something on 
like the big screen turns out to be like the most important part of any person's career. Um, like the dreams are great, but like you actually have to like do the thing. And I was really fortunate enough to find people who believed in me and who wanted to take the chance and who knew they were going to lose all their money and wanted to do it anyway. And uh, we were like, the f because we shot on the red camera, because it looked like a real movie, and because it was like 2010, it was the perfect time. It was like Netflix bought it, Hulu bought it, Amazon bought it. It was like a time when like you could still sell television rights. We, sold t we sold television rights in Germany. You know, like it was a really good time for like independent distribution. And then I went back to like making plays, which are like pretty cheap to make. And I could like raise the money doing like letter campaigns to my grandmother. And... Uh, yeah, it wasn't until like 2015 that I actually started to like make a living doing this, which is like not that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> the rapid ascent is easy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and you've kind of touched on this, but as you were sort of telling how you got to where you are, but exactly what did the original L word sort of like mean to you in your journey? Well, I think I think it's twofold. Like first, first of all, really like the fact that it was like just about lesbians, like like they're um, we, they still had that like heterosexual sort of like view into it. But once Jenny sort of like realized what was going on, like we were all they were all in. And that had never occurred to me. Like, we had never seen that before. We had seen, like, a rom-com, but we'd never seen, like, an ensemble show with, like, all queer characters. Like, it was crazy. It was nuts. So that part was important. But the other part that was really important for me was that Eileen Shaken was so visible making that show. Like, I didn't know what a showrunner was. I didn't, like, really know what even, like, a creator of television was. But I knew exactly who that woman was. I knew what she looked like. I, I like, I knew what she had done before. I mean, and then I continued to follow her career after that show went off the air. And that made a huge difference to me. Just like the visibility that she actually had. Oh, okay. Like gave me like a touchstone for like what I could go do. I didn't think I'd be doing her literal job, <laughs> but <laughs> great, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know if it's you know, sort of unique to, to the L word itself or like that's the nature of fandom. But I always found that like Eileen was almost a character in herself for the fans. And they would talk about like, her, you know, her intentions, discuss her intentions, discuss her plans, you know. Well, I think it was one of the first times we had like a for us, by us situation. You know, like Jennifer Westfeld's like pretty straight. She's, you know, like married to a guy for <laughs> a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, pretty straight. Yeah. Um, so, so the idea that there was like somebody who was like, no, I'm like married to a woman and I have like twin daughters. Like it was like a very different lesbian. Like it was a very different storyteller that was at like the front of that. And we could tell something was different about that show that felt like uh, somebody's making this with me almost rather than like at me. It just felt really different. You mentioned, you know, lo and behold, 15 years later, you're doing the reboot. You're Crazy sitting in town. her seat. Uh, how did you get involved and what was your pitch for the update? Yeah. So, uh, so I met Eileen in a writer's room for a feature film. They brought on like six writers you guys, this would be totally up your alley because really, we really were like women plus. So there was like, you know, there was like a black woman and there was like a, a Persian woman. There was like um, everything was like, like, yes, yes, we're a woman. But like, what else do you have? What other boxes are you checking? And I was I'm like, OK, I'm like doing the lesbian story. Obviously, that's what I'm always called into these rooms for. And then Eileen walked in and I was like, what could I be doing and they were like could you do the latina story i was like sure you couldn't find a latina no problem i'll do that i'll do the latina storyline but so we were in this room together in a writer's room for five days and it was i mean it was very crazy for me like we didn't know who was going to be in the room when we got the job 
Um, and I was just like sitting across from her and we just really hit it off. And then a few months later, Handmaid's Tale came on the air and I saw that she was, she had an EP credit on it. So I just sent her an email. I was like, Hey, I don't know if you remember me. We did this room together, but I just love this show. Congratulations. And she wrote me back. Hey, thanks. Yeah. I remember you. Do you want to come pitch on the L word? (laughs) And I was like, and I was, I just remember like getting the emails like in my apartment in Brooklyn. I like like just kind of like pop my head out to my wife and I'm like this is either a joke <laughs> that's like not that funny or like I think that Eileen's gonna let me go like pitch on the L word and she was like my, my wife was like are they ch-? we were just like I had no idea what she was talking about there I, I had this was like news to me that they were even trying to bring it back so I obviously got on a plane came to LA and um sat down with her and Jennifer and Leisha and Kate um in an Indian restaurant on Sunset Boulevard where I ordered a lot of food and ate <laughs> none of it because I was just so scared and they kind of got to tell me about, like, why they want to bring back the show and, like, where they think their characters might be and, you know, how interested in it was I. And I got to kind of do some, like, classic fandom and be like, where would these characters be in 10 years? So my real pitch was, like, to build on what worked and then to, like, put, like, the 2019 lens on it, which for me includes, like, a more inclusive cast, a more, you know, gentler understanding of, like, gender and sexuality generally and to erase the straight protagonist basically and just like drop people into like a queer world and they don't need a guide anymore that was kind of it and then the rest of it was like I like had this whole like presentation and mostly it was just like pictures of like me and my friends like in Cabo and like me and my (laughs) friends like at a picnic just to like prove that I had lesbian friends or I don't know what I don't know what I was what my point was there but I told them I'd lived in LA for 11 years and that meant 11 seasons of content and they were like okay let's see what you've got so that was it I mean it took me about a year and a half to get the pilot into like a real working order and then the room opened and we sort of hit the ground running pretty hard in February and we're six episodes in to an eight episode season we're almost Almost done (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious why you felt like now was the right time to bring back this story like 15 years after the originals run what has changed about the media landscape and and why did you feel like you wanted to bring it back now well I think that one of the reasons I mean to be honest I mean as you can tell by my story that I wasn't the person who like went to Showtime and was like I've got a great idea it was like they came to me and said do you have a great idea and they asked me that too like if you're gonna do it now why now but I think that the Social climate has changed considerably. I mean, we're living in a very strange time where it's we both have like much more freedom and and much more conversation about the queer community, but there's still like I mean just the the Supreme Court the other day, it's just like I can't believe we're still talking about whether or not people should be able to have jobs. Like whether or not people should be able to have housing. Like, we're still really engaged in these conversations, and there's someone on the other side saying, no. <laughs> like, like I, we're, so we're st- there's still so much shame. I've, I personally live in quite a little sweet little bubble in, you know, on the east side of L.A. where I don't, doesn't even, like, occur to me that I'm a lesbian. But our suicide rate is through the roof. The homeless youth, you know, like, we're responsible for more than 40% of, like, the queer youth is 40% of the homeless population. And it's like... Something's wrong. Something's terribly wrong. And whatever I can do to, like, reduce shame and to, like, tell joyful stories inside of our queer space, like, it is, like, my absolute pleasure and my absolute responsibility. You know, on the one hand, 15 years isn't that long. But on the other hand, as you've mentioned, a lot of things have happened, right? 
you know, the Supreme Court passing marriage equality, and there's been other shifts. I'm curious about how you feel Hollywood's approach to telling stories about lesbians has changed. Um, One example being, like you mentioned, you know, back in 2004, we needed Jenny Schechter to sort of be the audience avatar to introduce you to the lifestyle. And it sounds like there's not that kind of analog in, in the new one. But what are some of the other ways in which just, I don't know, I was also thinking about I think this is more particular to lesbians is that there's tends to be sort of a more of a tendency of like titillation or doing it for um, a male gaze, you know, so I'm just curious from your filmmaking standpoint what those differences are. Yeah, we definitely walk that line for sure. Take your first question first, which is like, what has changed and what do I see being like changing is that and Eileen says this in lots of interviews that the original L word was largely wealthy white women. And, you know, as the seasons went on, they added characters. But, you know, the story takes place in Los Angeles and there's like no Latinx character. You know, it's like, it's like, where are they? Like, there's no Asian characters. Like, this is LA, though. It's like, there's huge swaths of population. I mean, like Persians, there's like, I, I mean, you can't, you can't throw a stone. You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, we're a really diverse city. And I was hoping to like, really, to try to represent just what the city just looks like without making anything feel like, you know, the colors of the rainbow. I don't represent all people, but just take a stab at sort of adding people that I see and like I interact with every day. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has changed in media. You know, you have shows like Vita, you have shows like Pose, you know, you, we have more representation, but like people ask me like, well, we, but you know, there's Latinx leads on Vita. I'm like, it's not one show, you know, like there's no like maximum number of like Latinx lesbians on television. They're just like, can't, that can't be a thing we're doing, you know? (laughs) Um, Both of our shows take place in LA. We're both trying to do like similar things in that space. Our shows are nothing alike beyond that. And I'm quite certain that fans will see that. (laughs) And then the second part of your question was more about like- Sort of the approach or the, like just different- In in terms of like sex and sexuality too. Yeah, Yeah, like how, how to address like the male gaze. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. I think that- a couple of things that I think are different about our show. Well, first of all, I think that we're, we're living in a time right now where women actresses saying no to nudity is like a real point of pride for a lot of people. And we are we do not cast people whether or not they'll like based on whether or not they'll do nudity. That's like not part of like the show that I'm making. I believe in myself as a filmmaker that like I can do something that's beautiful without showing parts of their body that they don't want seen on camera. I think that's a huge difference that like knowing as a viewer when you're watching it that like there are so many layers of permission and layers of consent that go into our scenes. And I think that that's like just an expression of the time. And then in terms of how we capture it, like it's all about character development and it's all about like character relationships and character perspective. Um, You know, we don't do like wides of sex scenes, we try to really capture sex scenes as though we're experiencing it from the character's perspectives. We make sure that every sex scene tells a story and that that story is like crucial and cannot be told any other way. And actors will push back too. Like if I write something, they're like, what's this? And we'll have conversations about like where their character is going and and what this means. On the other side though, like I think it's so important and I'm really grateful for the actors who just go for it because that's part of the shame thing too. Like we still live in a world where like there's a one-to-one and I know as a young lesbian, I would watch something on television and be like, okay, like that's okay for me to do too. So I do think that there is like permission being given like as we create these intimate moments, especially with like characters that are in long-term relationships. It's okay, like it's okay to feel really good. It's okay to make somebody else 
else feel really good. And it's okay to like also not do those things. But I am very aware of like the one-to-one permission that we're giving, Mm -hmm. especially with characters that are representing like more than one box. I have a like a trans male Asian character on the show and he and I talk about it. It's like like the little Leos that are home like watching this. It's truly a one-to-one and it's not just about sex. It's like if he cries, I cry. I can cry. If he gets mad, I can get mad. If he stands up for himself, I can say it's like very there's not enough representation for that to not be true. I'm curious as you were sort of coming up with the stories you wanted to tell in this <laughs> new season, what were there any storylines or issues you wanted to explore? I mean, you're on Showtime, so that does give you a lot of freedom, but that you sort of had to fight for or convince either the room or execs that like this is something you wanted to show in the new series? Um no, but we are exploring things that we had that we spent a lot of time trying to figure out even if we all sort of thought they were good ideas we're like oh we're like well what it's like you take like kind of one step that way but I always feel like that's like how we know we're onto something because like it's we're trying to to straddle this line of like things that are new but not new for new sake one of those things that we really focus a lot on in the room was um religion or like faith inside the queer community Mm -hmm. For some reason, I ended up with like a lot of Christians in the room, like all like queer Christians who were kind of like, I still sing in the gospel choir. And I'm like, what are you? Okay. (laughs) And it's like, I went to church on Sunday and Frank is like, me too. And like, and it's just like, it was really interesting how we were like more closeted about that than we were about like our like sexcapades. And that really brought up a lot for us. So, so that was something that like really feels alive in this series. Again, it's about giving permission for people to believe that like those two things are not mutually exclusive. Like those two things can exist inside a human person. I have to say, like this is not this is really <laughs> not talking just because they employ me, but Showtime has been awesome to work for. They really hear me and like they believe that I am that I am the expert in the room. That like if I'm telling you like there's a lot of Mormons out there, the like reform Mormons in our community, they're not like, I don't know. Like they're like, okay, you know. If I say like there's a lot of like former athletes in our community, they're they're not like, prove it. You know, <laughs> like there's they, they understand. If if I like really want this special guest star, they're not like, who's that? And why does she matter? Right. They're like, okay. <laughs> we we believe. Speaking of that sort of interaction, right, with the network or with other folks, you know, I'm curious, how did you work with those who were involved with the original, such as Eileen, to address some of the things that, you know, I think now people look back on and had critiques of? For example, you mentioned, you know, the trans male character, right? Sure. Obviously, there was a lot of discussion about Max in the original being played by a cis female, um, things like that. Um, How did you guys work together to address those things? Well, I mean, I think the truth is that we wouldn't be doing this if Eileen didn't know that there were missteps. And she has been very public about them and she's very honest and, I hope I have as much like grace and humility when like, you know, 15 years later, some 30 year old punk is like telling me like, okay, let me try. <laughs> let me show you what it's really like, like, I'm, cause I'm sure it'll happen. And like, but that's the goal actually. If, if you look at it that way, like the, that's the dream is that somebody else is coming up behind me being like, okay, gender's a construct. Like, let's try again. <laughs> and like, and it, it'll happen. And like, I, I have a five month old son and like, that's what I joke about. His like first sentence will be like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I'll just be like, I don't know. <laughs> um, and, and uh, I look forward to that so it was it was like a very open line of communication I mean it was part of my original pitch it was it was part of like the just our original take on the show and just to make clear I believe I I don't know specifically because I'm not sure about the composition of the new cast but I would assume that there's probably a greater number of actors who are also 
LGBTQ or things like that than there perhaps were. And part of that maybe would be the climate in which things have partially changed I also think that people were just really like queer people were just stoked about the show and they just like started emailing me being <laughs> like can I come can I come play and like that was sort of the dream I mean like like Olivia Thirlby is in the cast I mean she was literally like can I come play then I was like sure you can come play <laughs> you know like the dream of having like fortune Feimster on the show is just like can, do you want to come play and she's like I'll come play <laughs> you know just like it's just kind of like you get to have like your team so that really came out of like interest more than me like going through an audition process there's still plenty of straight people around you know um we also don't cast based on that but in terms of the trans community something that i learned a long time i uh, in that room that writer's room where eileen where i met eileen i also met tracy oliver who wrote girls trip and she and i stayed close and we both sort of realized that like black people queer people whenever they're in something they're usually just one and we were both like okay no more one that was like our rule to each other was like we're whenever we do a thing we're gonna have like two you know <laughs> just so that like nobody's solely responsible for the telling of like their single people um so we have four trans actors on the show like two women two men and um i really did try to like noah's arc it as much as possible just so that nobody really is singularly responsible because i think that's really helpful too so you're not telling a story where like this fictitious woman who i named wendy who lives in the middle of the country is watching going oh trans men do this you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I think about that one-to-one -one a lot that's good that makes so much sense i like this <clears throat> noah's arc description <laughs> i did it in my nice. writer's room too my writer's room was fully fully noah's arc in there it's <laughs> <That's> great so. <laughs> it makes a difference it's great tell me a little bit about um with the revival shifting and expanding the focus from the L to Q. Yeah, I mean, that was also part of my original pitch, too, was like, like I mean, I so rarely refer to myself as a lesbian. I mean, like I think I am by, like, any m measure, but queer just feels more, like, generationally appropriate to me. It's, like, it's way more inclusive. It also includes, like, people who are... I think it's also a way of, like, bi like bi erasure is real, but it's a way of, like, including them, too, so that, like, if you see a lady with a guy, like, and they're like, I'm queer, we can all kind of be like, I get it, I see what you're doing here. So it, it just feels like a way of being like, but we're still on the same team. So I, I think I think that was my really my whole idea was like to try to get more people to identify with themselves on screen and to just get it's way more representative of the my friend group. Certainly. You mentioned some of the other titles that are out there now. Right. Vita, Pose, things like that. You know, how would you assess the state of queer representation in, in media today? And, and I guess I would mean mainstream media. Right. Television or film that's sort of widely available. Has it also become more inclusive in general? Yeah, I mean, mostly I watch the British baking show, you know what I mean? So I'm not actually, like, really in the trenches when I go home. Like, that feels like homework to me to, like, go and, and watch more TV. But I think that, yes, things keep getting better. Like, we are we are on the right path, but there's, like, 400-and-something scripted television shows. And I think that, like, the queer characters represent like something like 3% of characters and like that's not representational of our actual world. I think that there's a lot of people who are doing a lot of good and it's like really exciting to see people like Tanya Saracha and, and you know Shonda Rhimes just like use their platform, you know Ryan Murphy obviously and just like blow it up a little bit. It's 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 really exciting. Um, so yeah, I mean, of course we're doing so much better and of course there's just like so much more to do. Along the same lines, but more even sort of like business or industry focused, how do you think that the industries, you know, openness to 
I think at the beginning you said for us, by us, right? And that was one real distinction with L Word. How much do you think now the industry is sort of just allowing people from the community to have creative control over their own stories um, and how that's trickled? Well, I think it's like easy to forget that the industry is made up of individuals and the more diverse those individuals are, the more diverse that we become. Cause like, I, I, I'm not the first guy in, you know, I'm like the fourth guy in. So those other three people who are going through this and thinking about like, who should run this show? Like the fact that I've worked for Jill Soloway and Eileen Shaken, like, that's like kind of it you know what I mean like that's all I got I got no one else to work for um I I and 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 um that's totally not true by the way there's a lot of other queer people that I could totally go work for um but when I was like imagining my career like those are the two people Mm -hmm. that I really looked at and like I found them and they found me so like that matters a lot like who are those people like that room that I was in again like I was brought in by a queer brown woman she was like there's a last minute slot can you get here tomorrow morning at 8 a.m having somebody like that in those positions of power like looking out for me has been has made all the difference in the world so yes I think that we're more likely to get hired but we're really more likely to get hired by people who like look and sound like us Mm -hmm. And do you feel that responsibility now that you're sort of in a position oh, of hell power? Yes. I've always felt that sense of responsibility. I meet uh, young women and young queer dudes at a coffee shop almost like every one Saturday of every month. I just like sit there and just like I just have them parade on in. Mm-hmm. Not just queer women. I, I meet with with all kinds of women. Um, and I think it's the most important thing for me to do. People did it for me. And they become, <laughs> I remember this executive once I was at a breakfast and she told me that, you know, assistants become people one day. And I was like, yeah, that's not great, but I know what you mean. <laughs> and like, but, but like, like all of these people, like I want them to succeed, like genuinely want them to succeed, need them to succeed. Cause like, I need them in my writer's rooms. Like I need them to run my next shows. Um, and it is my responsibility to know who they are. Um, I get a lot of phone calls from like producer bros being like, Hey, so we're doing like a Mulan punch up. Like, do you know anyone? And I'm like, I know what you mean. mean, (laughs) Like, I see where you're up to. Or like, you know, like, Hey, like we're doing this, you know, like queer punch. Like, do you know any women? Do you know any? And like, people are looking for those voices, like to really make sure that they're not doing it wrong and partially it's out of fear but who cares I mean those checks cash and that response like that resume builds and like that's how you meet people so yes I take so much responsibility in that um I have tons of mentees one of whom was my assistant I pulled her off of the desk of my manager about four years ago and she's been my assistant for three and a half years and she got to she's a staff writer on the L word oh, now. Awesome. She's our diversity hire. She's a straight girl. So we like to wrap up the podcast with Uh-oh. two sort of fun bonus questions, I guess I would call them. So the first one here we call the history redo. So what is a past example of a lesbian or queer representation story that you would love to revise or recast, which is kind of funny to ask you as you make the sequel, like, other than, other than the show we may be telling <laughs> But is there some other film or, or show you sort of would have loved to 
Can I flip it and tell you and tell you and like do a fan fiction thing? Yeah. Sure. So when I was a kid, because the first time I ever saw myself on screen was Ellen Page and Juno. Mm. And I just mm-hmm. wish that the bottom of the second act, she just hooked up with Olivia Thirlby. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You I kind was, of like were expecting 100%. it. A hundred percent. I was like set. I was like, here we go. And then it didn't go there. So if I would just like take a take a pass. At I like script. it. I That's feel great. like Ellen Page herself would be fine with it. I, I, think, <laughs> I, think, I think Olivia would be fine with it. I think, I think everyone would be excited about it we just didn't know that that's what was that's yeah. what should happen yeah that makes sense um and then our last question is called the hidden gem which oh. is what is one you know again hewing to the theme so either like queer centric or lesbian focused story film or television show or whatever that you know our listeners should check out for themselves oh should check out there's no way they haven't seen it <laughs> I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll give out to in order to buy you time i always come up with one yeah um so again, this is speaking of intersectionality. Uh, again, maybe the listeners already have seen it, but the same year that L Word came out, there was an indie film called Saving Face. No, of course I know that. Yeah. I know all the time. I love that I director. I tried to get her no, direct on the L Word. She was best. She wasn't available. She's making something for Netflix. This is for the straights who are watching. <laughs> but um, Alice Wu, you know, uh, is the filmmaker you're sure talking do. about. Alice Wu directed an indie called Saving Face, and it's basically about two Asian-American women who fall in love and how one of them has a mom played by Joan Chen. And, you know, so it's very, like, intersectional about how, you know, in the Asian-American community. Oh, and her mom was also, I think, grappling with her divorce and things like that. It's been a while. She's a genius. That woman's a genius. She has such an interesting story, too. Do you know her? I don't. I don't know her her at all. But what's amazing is that just recently I read that she's finally doing her, like, next project or something on Netflix. But do you know where she went? No. I do. Okay. Well, I guess we'll have to get (laughs) (laughs) a cliffhanger for the next next episode. (laughs) Um, So what do I think that you should go watch? Um... I think that like the movies that are just stuck in my mind that are preventing me from from answering the question any better than this is like movies that are that are about like female friendship that just skew really mm. queer to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I mean the ultimate one is Fried Green Tomatoes. I mean <laughs> yeah. what a gay movie that was. <laughs> And um, I remember watching, I, I watched the shit out of that movie too. And it's so funny because it came out, I was like very young. And so like, it's interesting to like, think about like little, little me watching this and like nothing happens, but like I could feel what was happening. Um, and just the, the power of movies in that way. And that like, I was able to imagine whatever I wanted to was, um, was, was pretty incredible. So just go watch that again. There you go. There's nothing else to watch. Classic. I <laughs> promise you that there's going to be some Gen Zers who've never heard of it. Right. So, okay. This was useful. It is baffling how few things they've heard of sometimes when I make a reference. Someday there's yeah. going to be people who don't know there was an original L word. Yeah. And they'll just right. be like, they'll, think they'll be like Marja's the yeah. L word. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> That's fine. Well, Marja, thank you so much for joining us. And we can't wait to check out the L word Generation Q on December 8th at 10 p.m. on Showtime. My gosh. Sunday at 10. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. It's fun. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much to Marja Lewis-Ryan for joining us today to talk about the L word Generation Q. And a quick shout out to our colleague Leslie Goldberg for joining us earlier in this episode. 
Be sure to tune in to Leslie and our other colleague Dan Feinberg's THR podcast called TV's Top 5. And also stay tuned to Hollywood Remix next week when we talk to the team from A&E's award-winning series Born This Way, an unscripted show that follows seven adults living with Down syndrome. Make sure to subscribe to Hollywood Remixed on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks so much. We'll see you there. 